Uh, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, the new government will doubtless be pleased to know that, at least according to some commentators, it's just been awarded a gift of around £100 billion as the High Court rejects the appeals of several large DB schemes against plans to align the retail price index with the consumer price index, including housing and buy line. Of course, they mean replace. As the schemes weigh up whether to appeal, we will ask what the impact of this switch will be. Next up, cynics will point out that the NHS is never not in crisis, but there does seem to be something a little bit different about the current one. Record numbers of staff retiring, even as waiting lists surge to record highs, seems an obvious mismatch. But so far, the government has not, in the eyes of campaigners, done enough to solve the staff retention crisis. So what more needs to be done about that? And then finally, the NHS is, of course, but one admittedly large part of the country that is in need of fixing. And now Liz Truss has beaten Rishi Sunak in the game of musical chairs at number 10. We'll ask what her pensions priorities should be. I'm Benjamin Mercer, senior reporter at Pensions Expert, and I'm joined today by Dr. Vishal Sharma, Pensions Committee Chair at the British Medical Association, and by Mark Bondi, Society of Pensions Professionals Council Member, immediate past chair of its Legislation Committee, and if that weren't enough for one man, senior technical consultant at Capita as well. And thank you both very much for joining me. We'll uh, kick off then with the uh, RPI-CPI argument. The trustees of the BT, Ford and Marks and Spencer's pension schemes were unsuccessful in their appeal to the High Court against the planned switch out of RPI for CPIH. The government's statisticians don't like RPI, but industry experts have warned millions of pensioners could be left materially worse off by the switch, to say nothing, of course, of the anger at the lack of compensation for RPI-linked asset holders. Mark, I'll come to you first on this point for the sort of the overview. Um, so this appeal has been rejected. There are fears that I think tens of millions of pensioners could be materially worse off. What are we looking at here in terms of the precise material impact on pensioner incomes? Well, the first thing to remember is that the uh, change, the adjustments to RPI, are set at the end of this decade in 2030. So at least for the time being, over a transitional period, there won't be any uh, direct material changes for people who are receiving pensions in payment. The changes then do apply from 2030, where the uh, basis migrates within uh, 12 months to uh, amounting to effectively CPIH going forward. And of course, that will be uh, an estimate, a, a price in inflation index measure, which will be lower by about 07 to 0.1%, depending uh, on uh, circumstances. And we mustn't, doesn't always, the RPI is not always better than CPI. There was a brief period when we had the financial crash when actually the RPI was uh, lower than the CPI. But over, on average, that is an adjustment. The issue, I suppose, for some people in terms of fairness and equality is whether the RPI was fit for purpose. Because obviously, you could turn it around and say the RPI wasn't particularly fit for purpose. And that's why it's being adjusted to meet international standards. And the purest argument you know, for statistician is exactly that, that this is not fit for purpose. It's been changed. And from the purest statistician argument, people have been having a windfall and now it's being regularised. Of course, that doesn't necessarily feel like that for people who are in that position. And of course, for those who have invested in RPI assets on one set of assumptions, that is an adjustment. So it certainly is material over the over the long term, whatever we may think rightly or wrongly as to the justice of it. So yes, it will have an impact. But as I say, the in terms of people's pensions in payment and their revaluation, the impact is deferred until a later point. 
in terms of assets and how that's been hedged, there are impacts there as well. But again, I think some of the markets have already been anticipating this. So I think, therefore, some of this is priced in. And again, the fact that it's delayed 2030 uh, mitigates that. Sure thing. Just on the, the latter point, then, the impact on assets and asset holders, of course, they've criticised the decision not to award compensation because it might be a case of regularising, as you point out. But nevertheless, they did buy on a, a certain assumption. That assumption has now been undermined. Um, so as far as I understand it, the decision not to award compensation was because the RPI is still being published just as a legacy indicator. Was there, was there an argument that perhaps compensation should have been paid to these people, Mark, just because they bought on one term and now they're being given another one? Well, yes, there is that argument. There was certainly an argument on exactly those kind of principles. But I, the thing is, is the court has to construe according to the law rather than that. And therefore, the question then was, whose responsibility is it to do that? And the law just says the statisticians apply purely statistical measures and that's all they're concerned with. And Parliament hasn't authorised them to you know, evaluate the competing interests and deal with that aspect at all. And they weren't able to show that the Chancellor was under a legal obligation to do it either. So as the High Court's judgment was, that there is nothing in law to require it. Of course, that might mean that there's a political case, but of course, we all know that with this stuff, particularly with RPI guilts, as you say, the government is a winner. If the government was to hand over money to as a form of compensation, that would then create an additional bill, an additional debt for the country when there's a lot of other places they could be placing money, given that according to the courts, there isn't a legal obligation. Um, Fisher, if I could bring you in here, I think we were talking before I hit the record button about the, the public sector's equivalent of this, which I think you mentioned was it was a few years ago, wasn't it, that the public sector went through much the same thing. Well, what was the experience there with the impact on numbers, say, of, of the NHS scheme? Yeah, so, so absolutely. So, so this change actually happened across the public sector in 2011. So, it's, so we moved from RPI to CPI. And, you know, the arguments are pretty much the same. So the, the impact on this is is huge, to be honest. I mean, in terms of the, the actual amounts of money involved, it's very, very significant. And the BMA took, you know, advi- detailed advice at the time as about whether we could legally challenge this back in 2011. And our feeling was, unfortunately, legally, we couldn't challenge it. And it, it seems that has proven to be the case. But it does come back to what Mark was talking about. It's about fairness. And, and it's fairness on two grounds, well, three grounds, in fact, I would say. The first is, as you rightly pointed out, people who've bought into pensions, you know, it, it, across the public sector or the private sector, have done so on an assumption that when they receive their pension, it'll be linked to RPI. And, and obviously, that's a material change of, you know, 1% on average, I would say, um, per year that they're now losing. So that is a significant amount, you know, across both public and private sector DB schemes. And then the other kind of bit about fairness, it's very hard to argue about the maths problem with RPI, because I, th- I think we all understand that issue exists and we can understand that. But it's a question of what actually measures inflation the best. And do we think that CPI actually measures it the best? And certainly, on you know, in terms of what's important to people, it's how much can the pound that you take home actually buy? And so many things that we see day to day are increasing by RPI plus a percentage. You know, I've been inundated with letters from my mobile phone companies, my broadband providers saying your bill's going up by RPI plus 3%. So it's it's very hard to say, actually, that this doesn't have an impact if you're if your pension is then linked to only CPI. And one of the things that really irks us uh, as doctors is that junior doctors are graduating with hundreds of thousands of pounds of debt now. And student loans, you know, when you owe government money, 
are still linked with RPI. So the government are very happy to, to use RPI when it suits them, but when they have to pay it out, they're less keen. Yeah, I, I'm uh, withholding my my own personal angle on that. My student loan book is not going to look particularly good after this, I'm sure. Well, since we're on the political question, and we, we've raised the, the subject of the NHS, I think that's probably is a, a good time to, to move on to the second topic. And that is, of course, that the NHS is struggling at the moment. I think retirements in the last the three months to April, sorry, this year, they were around 50% higher than in the same period across the uh, past five years. And according to some estimates, as much as a sixth of the entire population of the country could shortly find themselves on a waiting list. Of course, more staff would presumably mean more capacity. But at the moment, the government has only responded to the increased demand by merely extending the suspension of rules governing workers who retire and return. I know at least one of our guests uh, will have quite a lot to say about this one. So, um, Vishal, I think I'll start with you if that's okay. We'll begin just with what the government has done so far and then maybe move on to what we would like them to do. So the retire and return proposals, do you want to quickly lay out out for us who that affects and and what the uh, idea behind it is? Yeah, I mean, I'll just pick up on one point. You said the intro, actually, first, if that's okay. You said the NHS is always in crisis. But just to really put this into context, you know, I've been working in the NHS now for the best part of 25 years, including my student days. This is absolutely rock bottom. This is the worst I've ever known. So I, I just can't overestimate just how big a problem this actually is at the moment. And the government really, I think, you know, has its head in the, you know, head in the sand on this one because we've been warning them for the best part of a year, 18 months or so probably, that if, unless they do something around pensions, they're going to lose around 10% of their senior workforce. And that's right at the time when, as you say, waiting lists are absolutely off the scale and the worst, you know, worst in history. So they really need to do something about it. But at the moment, they're not really doing anything. So they've talked, they've made a, a big fuss about the kind of adjusting what's what are called abatement rules. These abatement rules, what they mean is that if you, um, for certain groups of people, which for doctors really only are those, are a certain small proportion of psychiatrists, um, there are some special class nurses as well separately and those with, with ill health, but tiny, tiny numbers across the whole population that are affected by these so-called abatement rules. And they've been suspended. But what that means is in practice that those people normally, if they return to NHS practice after taking their pension, they couldn't exceed their pre-retirement income. And if they did with their pension and their, their kind of return income, their pension was reduced as a result. But that only applied actually if you came to the back into the NHS. If you went into the private sector, you weren't affected by it. But it's very welcome that they've suspended those rules. Would actually say you should suspend, you could get rid of them completely because I think it's nonsense to say that you've, you've accrued a pension. Why should you have that reduced if you come back to work afterwards? You just there is no reason for it, a rationale, but it just affects such a small percentage of people across the NHS. It will have absolutely no impact. It doesn't um, affect affect the issues we have in general practice. The vast majority of consultants who are not psychiatrists will not be impact not not be benefiting from this change at all. So I think we're, then we're coming on to what the change needs to happen is. Now we've been covering this as I mentioned before. We started roughly once a week for the last few well two months I would say at least. And the point that always comes up is pensions, taxation and tax rules, especially the annual allowance, um, I believe. So what needs to happen instead, in addition to the retire and return things? What, what precisely are you calling for um, in terms of tax changes and the, the Finance Act Amendment, which I think has been mentioned as well? Yes. Yeah, so so, so that there, are, there are two things that we think you know, urgent need to happen. The first, which you allude to, is, is about the Finance Act. And, and I think one of the fundamental problems is 
the annual allowance just doesn't really work in a defined benefit scheme like the NHS because you can't control your growth. It's not so if you have an annual allowance of thirty thousand pounds or forty thousand pounds, for example, you can't choose to put that amount of money into your into your pension. It's just a calculation based on your earnings for that year. And there are so many different quirks, you know, that can happen. If you get a small pay rise, for example, you can exceed the annual allowance, even if you've got a relatively small income. You know, if you uh, if your pay goes up and down, you can get taxed on growth that you then don't benefit from. There are all sorts of quirks that mean that the annual allowance just doesn't work in this sort of scheme. And one of these real issues right now is, is about inflation. Um, because you have two different values of inflation that are being applied to the, the actual calculations of the NHS pension scheme. And the annual allowance is only ever supposed to look at growth above inflation. But because the opening value of the pension, so the amount you're allowed to grow your pension before assessment of the annual allowance is based on inflation from the year before, we this year we're only allowed to actually grow our pension by about 3%. However, your part of your pension is revalued. For GPs, all of your pension is revalued by inflation based on this year. So they'll see their pensions go up by 10 or 11%, which sounds fantastic. But actually, they'll, what that will ha what happen is they'll incur massive tax bills on that growth, even though it's inflationary because of these two different values of inflation. And then the worst part about all of this is that if inflation kind of settles, uh, initially it was thought to settle next year, it might it's looking more likely it's going to be two years down the line. But if, if inflation settles again, there's a very real risk that all this growth you've been taxed on will just disappear. So it's it's completely anomalous. So, so I think, you know, you have to make sure the Finance Act is amended to make sure it's only truly looking at kind of growth above inflation. So that needs to happen very quickly because that, you know, for a GP, for example, earning £60,000 this year working part-time, there's a very real risk that they, if they're, their pension's near the lifetime allowance, they can get a tax bill of about £27,000, £28,000, which is nearly their entire post-tax income. So it, it's a really massive problem. And unless it's fixed, there'll be a, a big exodus of people this year. But long-term, we don't want a tax break. We, we want to pay the right amount of tax. You know, I think that's that's the issue. And we don't want any limits on how much work we can do. You know, tax should never be a disincentive to actually doing more work. So we just want a fair system. And they've, the government have shown the way for judges by having a tax unregistered scheme. So under a tax unregistered scheme, all of your pension inputs, once you choose to move into that scheme, are based on post-taxed income. So there is no tax relief at all. And therefore, you don't need to sort of subject any savings to the lifetime or the annual allowance. And that's a fundamentally fair system. It's a progressive form of taxation. There are no cliff edges. I think that's the right solution that the government must do. Excellent. Mark, can I bring you in on, on this in that case? On the tax unregistered scheme proposal at the end, I know the government has uh, considered that because it was a petition, wasn't there? And the government did rule that out. What are the perks and what are the drawbacks of such a tax unregistered scheme? Because you're not getting tax relief, you would be taxed, you know, fully on the accrual at the time. And then, of course, it depends on how that is structured. I mean, taking actually, if I'd like to actually speaking about the first proposal, which is in relation to registered schemes, I think it's a very fair proposal to say that the inflation uh, rating should be modified. Clearly, we are going to have a spike and the lag that is built into these inflation elements in registered pension schemes is actually a, a significant issue. And as I say, particularly with the spike. And then, of course, if, there, if, there's a, if there's a subsequent change, then as noted elsewhere, you don't get any credit for what you might call negative pension input because the uprated value afterwards will be 
uprated by the spike inflation, but the actual pension itself won't be increased by that amount. So, and then of course you won't have you won't have gained the benefit from that. So, the annual allowance is a problem because essentially they are trying to tax professionals. But I don't think they really clocked that a lot of those professionals are things like, for example, NHS doctors. Uh, they just had a kind of perhaps bespoke view as to who are the high earners. And I think, therefore, there is a pretty much an issue with the whole annual allowance system. And also touching on the other aspect of this is the, the effect of the lifetime allowance being frozen. Now that we know we're getting a spike in inflation, effectively means in real terms the lifetime allowance is being reduced again and that is also a problem which uh, will again uh, result in more taxes with an unregistered scheme obviously the principle is if it's certainly if it's funded you would immediately have a tax charge for the amount going in without relief so that will create its own tax element uh, which is why it's not necessarily a cheap option for employers. Of course, the government may, of course, then have to gross up that cost. And then there's questions about how government accounting deals with that. Now, I'm not a, a specialist in how the government would seek to account for that, but probably uh, a serious reason is that they are concerned about that when they, they've rejected this proposal, or at least... I should say the last administration has rejected that proposal. The new administration might have second thoughts. I would say you probably would want to separate out those who should be. With judges, you see, they're an obvious class who are quite high earning and at a certain level. With the, with the NHS, you've got a much broader group of people, the vast majority of whom the registered pension scheme will be better for them. So you then have to think about, well, OK, how are we going to do it? You know, there's there's quite a number of angles to this. Um, it probably needs uh, further investigation. We'll have to see wh whether the government actually want to, to look at that point. But I do need to think they need to do something because the system is not working well. They've had to adjust it for the tapered annual allowance, but the principles need probably further looking at. And just to end with the thought, let's not forget that pensions in payment for registered schemes are taxed when you get them. So it's, it's not tax relief we talk about, it's tax deferral. So there's an element of recognising that we're having a system that taxes uh, excess saving as they see it, and then obviously taxes the actual benefit when you take it. Yeah, and, and just, to, just to add to that, if I can as well, so the other thing that is doubly unfair is that in the NHS pension scheme itself, it already adjusts for higher rate tax relief. So, so even though all the schemes now are career average, so in effect, every employee is buying the same pound of pension at the same rate, in theory, what, what actually happens is the lowest paid will pay as low as 5% contributions for that same pound of pension. And a higher, you know, a doctor, for example, or a higher earner would pay 14.5%. And the big justification for that difference was to offset tax relief. So actually, you've already got an additional mechanism of actually taking out tax relief for, for doctors that doesn't exist in other sectors. So, you know, it, we're, we're, it feels like we're hit four times. You have the tax relief adjusted for its source with your contribution rates. You then hit the annual allowance if you exceed that, then the lifetime allowance. And then, as Mark says, your tax on your pension at the end as well. So it's, it's that compounding impact of kind of taxation that really causes these disincentives to work. And we've heard informally from, from government and the sources that the majority of annual allowance um, charges that come through 
come from the NHS because actually in the private sector, if you're paying annual allowance tax charges, frankly, you need a better accountant because you can adjust your um, inputs accordingly. And what tends to happen in the, in the private sector is that if you're in that ballpark, they just pay you more a salary. So you, don't, you, you put you can lessen your pension and they pay you more a salary. We don't have that option across the board either. Yes, because that would be another solution. You're going to get more tax charges. Hey, we're just going to increase your salary. But again, uh, salary increases aren't great as a solution for the annual allowance because, as already alluded to, the fluctuations don't map very well uh, in the DB world. You get lags and you also get the fact that the annual allowance charge is powerfully determined in a DB scheme by the amount of existing benefit you've got. It's the increase in benefit. So if you've got an across-the-board increase in benefit, then certainly the final salary world, that makes it very painful for very long-serving people. Career average, it's moderated, but there's still there's still an impact that it doesn't map very well to just straightforward dealing with it with an extra salary payment. Sure thing. Well, I think, um, having mentioned changes that need to happen and, and governments that may or may not be considering them. That does sort of naturally segue into our final topic, uh, which I think we'll keep relatively brief. But the um, we have a new prime minister installed, of course. We don't know how long this one is going to last. Uh, we also have a new on the day of recording Secretary of State at the Department of Work and Pensions. That's Chloe Smith, MP. We're not yet sure about the fate of Guy Offerman and whether he manages to become, I think, the first pensions minister to leave his job twice in two months. But we'll wait and see for that one. Um, there's a lot to be getting on with in any way, as we've mentioned, the country's in a little bit of a state. So what should the priorities be? Uh, we've discussed the NHS in, in great detail, but I mean, are there other angles, Vishal, that you, you would like to bring up first as priorities for the new prime minister? Yeah, so it's basically we've got a, a massive cost of living crisis and we've got an NHS that's on its knees. And those two things together are really terrifying, I have to say. Going into winter, we know that if people can't afford to heat their homes, if people can't afford to you know, get you know, food on the table, that leads to poor health. And, you know, when you've got an NHS that's already struggling, that, that's a recipe for disaster. So it is really those two things about tackling the cost of living crisis and making sure the NHS is in the best possible place it can be to, to support the nation. Because ultimately, you know, a healthy nation is a productive nation. And I think one of the things that um, the government doesn't often look at is that, yes, health costs a lot of money, a lot of money goes into it. But if we can get people healthy, the sort of downstream savings that that generates is, are very significant. Sure thing. And Mark, if I asked you to list your uh, your dream wish list for the Prime Minister. Well, yes. I mean, firstly, we do have to recognise that given the current crisis, the cost of living is going to necessarily be the first priority. And obviously that is directly material because obviously people may choose to leave pensions or opt out of savings, which is a bad idea generally, because they, they've got no choice because the cost of living is so pressing. So I fully endorse the need for that. We've already spoken also about NHS pensions. I actually do worry uh, seriously about the long term as well as the short term. And I am concerned about adequacy uh, of contributions for many people who are in the private sector. And the fact that so many people, but there's an entire generation that are heading towards a, a difficult retirement. And I think there is a need for society to actually grasp the net and at least getting some contributions in because outside of the public sector, a lot of employers are only paying in automatic enrolment minimum, which is not going to be anywhere near adequate. So we had a 2017 review, which made minor uh, adjustments and suggestions and for a combination of Brexit and COVID, and now the present situation is, is progressively being pushed back on implementation. I think 
we need to start recognizing that we need to commit to to do, make some implementation and to look also at the overall contribution limits. Now, Liz Truss is very keen on personal responsibility. Uh, so I think one of the things that will drive that is information and pensions dashboard is an absolutely massive project. It's an enormous amount of work and it needs, I think, you know, it's very, very challenging the timescale. That is because the industry wants to work and deal with data. Many schemes have a lot of pressure on them and dealing with their data and getting ready is something that they are going to, they're going to struggle with. So I think in terms of dashboards, it needs to, we need to be pragmatic. We need to work with employers and schemes to get this situation managed appropriately. So I would suggest pensions dashboard contributions in terms of delivering an automatic enrollment and as and the two feed in because if people can see their pensions and what they're like to get that drives the agenda for personal responsibility and the final thing it's on the list is just to be aware Liz Truss has said that she doesn't like too much over regulation so there's talk about regulators being changed but also we've got some serious potential changes on scheme funding and investment and the amount that employers will have to do to fund them as affordability. And there's a real conflict there between the principle of getting schemes funded and affordable, member security, which is goes back to Theresa May's time, and also the statutory objective of the regulator to minimise adverse impact on the sustainable growth of the employer, which originally goes back to George Osborne's time, but also speaks right now to where Liz Truss will be thinking in terms of growth. Um, that brings us to the end of the, the principal part of the programme, but I think there's just about time for our always uh, pensions angle. And I think, Vishal, you had one for us, did you? So far away. Uh, it's it's obviously been a, a big change in government this 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 week. Um, a lot of comings and goings and people moving house and things. And I know the MP's pension is very generous, but uh, I wasn't sure how far it would stretch towards interior design budgets or, or cheese and wine. So I don't, don't know what people think about that. There's a campaign to get more generous MPs' pensions. So. And if the Prime Ministers were more generous, he wouldn't be about to jet off around the world giving £250,000 speeches. But um, maybe that's an argument for increasing parliamentary pensions. I'm not sure the voters would back that very much. Well, um, that does bring us to the close of the programme. Thank you both very much to Vishal and to Mark for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for listening to us. We'll be back as ever in two weeks' time, and we hope we will see you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.